We are continuing our study in the book of Acts right now. Acts chapter 10 is a pivotal chapter because we are moving into this time where we're going to see God starts to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And um, so big change that's happening. And we'll see that as we begin to get into the word today. But let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you love us. We thank you, God, for your word that you give us that just speaks to our heart. And Jesus, we want to invite you right now to use your word to encourage us and challenge us and and change us. And so we give you this time today. We want you to be glorified in it. We want to leave this place differently than when we came in. And so we give you our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had this experience? The Holy Spirit is ministering to your heart and he's prompting you to do something that makes you uncomfortable. He's he's prompting you to take a a step into something that that makes you uncomfortable. Anybody anybody ever experienced that? Okay. Maybe perhaps it was the prompting to sign up for a ministry opportunity. Maybe something that you were like, I can't see myself doing that, but they need help for VBS. Maybe I'll sign up for that. You know, maybe it's the prompting to go on a missions trip and, and you've never been on one. Perhaps it's the prompting to walk across the coffee shop and and tell that person sitting all by themselves that that Jesus loves them or that prompting to walk across the the office hallway to the cubicle the guy or the gal next to you and tell them you know that the Lord has a plan for their life or maybe it's to walk across the school campus and share Jesus with someone and and, and when that happens when you get that prompting your heart starts pounding, right? Sometimes you start sweating. You know, you start going through those mental gymnastics. Is this really the Lord or is it really me? Does anybody ever experience that? Okay, I'm not the only one, all right? I experienced that. And it can be unnerving, can't it? But it's so exciting when you respond to that prompting. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went on a little uh, vacation trip. We got out of the gloom that has been Southern California for so long now, and uh, we went to the Sunshine State of Arizona. and um, and, I, and I love when I go on a vacation to to read a book. So I was reading this book, and in this book, the, the author told the story about this guy, true story, who was at the mall one day, and he's walking out of this store at the mall and he sees this guy sitting on a bench and, and the Lord just prompts him and says, go tell that guy that God loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. And the guy responded by going, Lord, I'm not doing that. I mean, I mean that guy's just minding his own business. He's just sitting there, you know, on, on the bench, probably waiting for his wife. I'm not going to do that. And so he went on. He went on, continued shopping, goes into another store. About 30 minutes later, he's walking out of this other store, and that same guy is sitting on another bench right in front of him. The Lord prompts him again, and he's like, no, I'm not doing this. And he goes on and, and uh, goes into a third store, and after, you know, 15 minutes or so, comes out, and the same guy, I am not kidding, is sitting on another bench outside of that store. He's like, okay, Lord, I get it. All right. And he walks up to the guy and goes, hey, I want to, you know, sorry to bug you, but you know, this might seem really, really weird, but I'm a Christian and I just feel like God's been prompting me to tell you that he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
And this guy goes, you would not believe. This is incredible. He says, I woke up this morning ready to kill myself. And I told God, he says, I don't believe in God. I didn't believe God exists, but I said, God, if you are real, I want you to prove it to me that you are real. And he thought, what better way for God to prove himself than at the mall, you know? So, <laughs> and he says, you're the third person that has come up to me today and told me that God loves me and has a plan for my life. And that guy got saved right there that day in the mall. I mean, how, how cool is that, right? How cool is that? Well, in our text today, we're going to see that the Lord is going to send a message to the apostle Peter. And he's going to send him this message, like the guy in the the story I just told, three times. And the purpose of the message is to get Peter moving in the direction that God wants him to go. Because God wants Peter to be his vessel to bring the Gentiles to, or the, the gospel, excuse me, to the Gentiles. In fact, all of us sitting here today, all of us watching online, if you are not Jewish, we have all benefited radically from the events that we're reading here in Acts chapter 10. Because this is the moment where God is stirring his church to get the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations. And we're going to spend two weeks looking at this story. But I want you to note this. That whenever God is going to work in an area or in a person's life, it usually involves these four things. There's his plan. There's a time period, there's a place that he's going to work, and there are people. There are the people or the person that he's trying to reach with the gospel, and then there are the people that God that, that is wanting to use. They're the vessels that he wants to use to bring the gospel. Now, God's plan was put forth for us back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said this to his disciples, and you are going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was the plan. And the uttermost parts of the earth included the Gentile nations. But up to this point in our story in the book of Acts, their ministry has primarily only been to the Jews or the half-Jews, if you include the Samaritans. But it's time, now's the time, for that to change. That God wants to go to the Gentiles. And Acts chapter 10 puts us about 10 years into the life of the early church. The place where this is going to happen is in Caesarea. Caesarea is this beautiful coastal town there on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And the person that God is wanting to reach is this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius and the person that God is wanting to reach, use to reach him is the apostle Peter. But in order for this to take place, God is going to have to break through layers and centuries of both religious barriers, but also social prejudices and tension that existed in the world at that particular time. 
As we go through these first 23 verses, I'm dividing our study up this way today. We're going to look at, first of all, what I'll call Cornelius's calling. That's verses 1 through 8. And then we're going to look at what I'll call Peter's conflict. That's verses 9 through 23. But let's begin with Cornelius's calling. Look here in verse 1. Follow along as I read. He says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what has been called the Italian regiment. Let's hear it for the Italians. I'm Italian. And uh, <laughs> a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Pause there and let me have your attention. So who was Cornelius? Let's look at his background. Cornelius is a Roman which means he is a part of the class and the country that is ruling the world at that particular time. The Romans were the oppressors. They saw the rest of the world and all the other ethnic groups as being beneath them, that the other people were to be their servants. Rome was also polytheistic in its religion. That means that they worshipped many, many gods. They were known from what was called the Roman pantheon that consisted of 12 different gods that they worshipped. And this is the world that Cornelius was born into. This is the, the world that he was raised in. And he is a man who progressed in that world. We're given his occupation that he was a Roman centurion. Now, the Roman army was divided into legions of 6,000 men. And those 6,000 men were divided into cohorts of 600 men. And then the cohorts were divided into six groups. And these six groups of 100 men, and each one of them were led by a centurion. And this is what Cornelius was. The centurions were the master sergeants of the royal army. They were men of brave heart, of sound mind, of strong discipline. They were man's men. They were the type of men that men, that other men would want to follow. And Cornelius was leading the soldiers who were known to be fiercely loyal to Rome and to the emperor himself. And his job as a Roman centurion, is to enforce the rule of pagan Rome, the pagan Roman Empire, over the descendants of Abraham, over the Jewish people, which would have made Cornelius the object of intense Jewish contempt. And that contempt would have been amplified by the fact that the Romans had occupied the land of Israel. And so there was great, great contempt for them and for him by the Jewish people. But amongst his superiors, Cornelius is a man who was held in high esteem. He was a man who could be trusted He no doubt had a great battlefield record. And the reason why I say that he was held in esteem and a man who was trusted is because he is stationed in a great place. I mean, he has a great gig. He's in Caesarea, this beautiful city right there on the coast. But it was also an important city. Because Caesarea, during the time of Caesar Augustus, it was the Roman capital of the province of Judea. 
And Caesar Augustus had gifted the city to King Herod. And in turn, to honor Caesar Augustus, King Herod built this beautiful palace right there on the coast. And this beautiful amphitheater, humongous. It it was bigger than the Roman Colosseum. And we're hoping to go to Israel again in 2024. And when we go there, we go to Caesarea and we see the ruins of the palace and we see the ruins of of the amphitheater. But it is a gorgeous, it's a beautiful place, but it was also a strategic place. Caesarea housed the Jewish navy that that aided the Romans in their battle. And so Cornelius is living in a place that, that would be similar to Coronado Island today. Wealthy place, beautiful place, strategic place. And he has been placed there because he's a man that you can trust. But while there, Living in Caesarea, God begins to do something in his heart. That leads us to consider Cornelius' spiritual orientation. Notice how he's described in verse 2. He's described as a devout man, one that feared God. And this is amazing to me. Don't miss this. This is amazing to me that as a typical Roman, he's been exposed to the Roman pantheon. This belief, this polytheistic belief in all of these gods that that included Jupiter and Augustus and Mars and Venus and eight others. But we're told here that Cornelius, he feared Jehovah. Something is happening in his heart. Something is drawing him towards Judaism. And I want you to think about that Cornelius was raised in an entirely pagan culture. He grew up in it. He was trained in it. He lived in it. He worked in it. There is nothing inherent in his life or culture that pointed Cornelius toward the living God. But now he's seeking the true and living God because God has been working in his heart. And doing something in his heart to make him see that the idols of Rome have always failed and they've always lied. That they're not real. And so Cornelius turns toward Judaism in hopes that he's going to find what he's really, really looking for. Today we would call him a seeker. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've come into this place or you're watching online. You're like, you know, I need something in my life. I'm going to try this church thing. I'm going to try this God thing. But know this in the same way that that Cornelius, we call him a seeker, but he was really already being drawn by God because that's how it starts. God was doing this work in his life. And Cornelius gets as close to Judaism as you can get without actually becoming a convert to Judaism. And the effect of this seeking, it had an effect upon all those around him. We're told in verse 2 that it affected his whole family. That somehow they all are turning from the polytheistic way of Rome and they're turning toward Jehovah to seek the true and living God. It's affecting his behavior. He's giving alms and he's helping the poor and he's praying to this God. And I got to tell you, I have met so many people like Cornelius, people who maybe have come out of a Catholic background or a Mormon background, people who have a religious belief, people who are are good people and they try to live good lives, who because of their religious affiliation and their good practices and their good works, they think that they are in a good place with God. 
They think God's going to accept me. I mean, I'm, I'm religious and, and I, I do these good things. But they have the same problem as Cornelius. They don't know Jesus. They haven't embraced Jesus as the only way to salvation. And so because of that, they are lost. They're living, believing that their good works or the religious affiliation is going to get them into heaven. But the life of Cornelius flies in the face of that mentality. Because Cornelius wasn't religious enough and he wasn't good enough. He still needed Jesus. And so that brings us to the vision of Cornelius. We'll pick it up in verse three. It says about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. There's several things I want you to note here. The first of all is I want you to, to note that his prayer was heard. You know, a lot of people ask sometimes, does God hear everyone's prayers? And the answer to that is, of course he does. He's God. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's, he's omniscient. He's, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He hears everyone's prayer. But listen, God does not obligate himself, though, to answer everyone's prayers. He obligates himself to answer the prayers of his people, but he doesn't obligate himself to answer the prayers of, of, of anyone, of the non-believers. But for Cornelius, he hears his prayer. The second thing I want you to note here is that God meets us where we are at. Cornelius is this military man. He's used to giving and receiving marching orders, and God is going to deal with him in a military way. He sends this angel who comes to give him these marching orders. But I also want you to note that God doesn't send the angel to share the gospel with Cornelius. Note that. Why? Because God doesn't pick angels to share the gospel. That's not their mission. That's not their calling. No, God has chosen that the gospel would be shared by people, that God uses saved people to reach lost people with the message of the gospel. God could have thundered loud with his voice if he wanted to, but God doesn't do that. He chooses to use people like you and I who have been touched by his grace to share that grace and to share that love through the gospel message with others. I love what Daniel 12, three says that those who turn many to righteousness shall shine as stars forever. Such a great verse. That means that if you are a soul winner, if you are a good news sharer, you are going to shine, not just in heaven, but here on the earth. And guys, we have good news to share. And when you share it, isn't it invigorating when you share Jesus with others? So Cornelius has this vision. This angel comes to him, tells him to go and send. Go, go to send some men to Joppa to get Simon, whose surname is Peter, and to, to have him come. And he will tell you what you must do. And that leads us to consider Cornelius' submission. Look at verse 7. And when the angel spoke to him, 
had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to him, he sent them to Joppa. Notice that phrase though in verse six again. He, Peter, will show you what you must do. Cornelius, your marching orders are going to come from a Jewish guy named Simon. That had to have been humbling to hear. Cornelius is probably thinking, wait a minute. We're, we're over them. We're, we're leading them. We're better than them. I'm going to receive my marching orders from a Jewish guy? But listen, this is something that we are going to see on both ends of this story. And I don't want you to miss this. That in order for God's plan to be carried out, it was going to involve the humbling and the submission in the heart of the person that God wants to reach, which is Cornelius. But it's also going to involve, in order for God's plan to be carried out, it's going to involve the humbling and the submission in the heart of the person that God wants to use, which is Peter. There's one more thing I want you to note is it says, When the angel says, send for Peter, Cornelius does that immediately. He sends his guys to go. And we've seen this over and over. It's a reoccurring theme here in the book of Acts that God moves in power and wonder when his people don't procrastinate. But when we respond immediately to his leading in our lives. So in Cornelius and his family and his friends, we have the people that God wants to reach. As we pick up in verse 9, we have Peter, the person that God wants to use. So follow along, beginning here. Um, Actually, before we we read about Peter, I want to give you a little bit of his background. This is important. Peter is Jewish. So Peter is a part of people who are being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans invaded their land. They're occupying their land. They're controlling their land. The the Romans have placed upon them a heavy taxation, which means there was a great tension and animosity that the Jewish people had toward the Romans. And so needless to say, the average Jew would have viewed Cornelius as being off the radar of someone who could receive God's grace and mercy and love. On top of that, Peter has grown up in a religious system of Judaism that has taught him to live by a strict dietary laws, where certain foods were deemed as clean and other foods were deemed as unclean. And if you ate those unclean foods, that would mean that you have become unclean and you have to go through this whole ritual purification of washing. You see, in the first century, the Jews and the Gentiles were separated by pedigree, by circumcision, by Sabbath worship, but but above all, they were defined by their diet. And a kosher Jew would religiously, thought himself religiously superior to a non-kosher Gentile. And that kosher Jew would never in a million years pull up to a table full of food that God had forbidden. Because to the Jew, all of life was divided in these segments, clean 
versus unclean, holy versus unholy, pure versus impure, acceptable to God and unacceptable to God. And that distinction was the grid that flew over every single part of their lives. And every single time a kosher Jew sat down to eat, he was reminded of this very thing between this distinction between right and wrong, holy and unholy, that the good guys ate clean food and the bad guys ate dirty birds. That's the way they looked at it. In fact, the Jewish rabbis took this distinction even further. When they said this, that the the whole purpose why God made the Gentiles was simply to use them as logs to fuel the fires of hell. That's what they taught. So if you saw some big strapping, you know, Gentile guy, you'd say, man, that log's going to burn a long time. You know, that was their focus. Well, God is going to break through all of that prejudice All of that misconception by giving Peter a vision. A vision that is going to shake him up. A vision that is going to cause consternation in his heart. But through this vision, God is going to reveal to Peter that he is the chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That he is the chosen vessel to break through centuries of prejudice and false teaching among his people. And through this vision, God is going to reveal to Peter that anyone apart from Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, is unclean. All of them. And we'll see that part of the story next week. But let's look at, first of all, the conditions of the vision in verse 9. It says the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on a housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's noon. And then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. So pause there for a minute. Peter is there in Joppa, the seaside town. It's lunchtime. And he says he goes up on the rooftop to pray. Now, now don't picture, you know, you pulling out a window at your house to, to go sit up on the roof. In those days... In fact, when we go on our trip to Israel, we go to Joppa, we go, we see the house of Simon the Tanner, and, and when they, the, the cities, there, there wasn't a lot of real estate to their houses in the cities. They, they were all close together, so they didn't have these like backyards that we have today. So they built up, and the, the rooftops were their patios. And they made them flat and they would go and sit. And it was a great place in the hot Mediterranean sun to go and sit, especially in Joppa, to to get that coastal breeze. So Peter is up there on the roof and he's found a quiet place where he can have a quiet time and quiet his heart to pray. And this is always a good example. If you're in a place you want to hear from the Lord, find, and I hope you have this in your life, a quiet place where you can have a quiet time where you can quiet your heart and really hear from the Lord. I know oftentimes in my life when I feel like there's kind of a block between me and God, I head down to the beach early in the morning. I got my chair, I got my tea, I got my Bible, and God always seems to speak to me in that environment. That's what Peter's doing here, and I hope you have a place like that. 
I can also relate to what happens next to Peter because as he's praying, as he's spending that time with the Lord, it's lunchtime and he's getting hungry. His stomach is growling and he's thinking about, about food. And as he's getting hungry, he kind of falls into this half prayer, half trance type of thing. And he sees this vision that is going to rock his world. And we see the content of the vision. Notice there in verse 10, it says, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. So suddenly there's like this picnic blanket coming down from the sky and it has all these animals on it. And Peter's looking at this. These are all these incredible edibles on on the menu. These wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air are the featured entrees. But the problem is all of these tasty entrees fly in the face of everything that Peter was taught by his religion that he could consume. And then we see the command of the vision in verse 13 when he hears, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. I love to share this verse with my vegan friends. <laughs> Look, man, it's biblical. We can eat meat. We can, you know, it's all right to do that. But the command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter knows that this is from God. And this is where we see the conflict. In Peter's heart, because of the vision, in verse 14, he says, not so, Lord. For I have never, everybody say never. Never. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven. Now, it's understandable why Peter at first found this vision to be revolting and the command to kill and eat shocked him even more because no kosher Jew in a million years would touch food like this. It was forbidden. And Peter notes here, nothing, my whole life, nothing has ever, unkosher has ever, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. It's heavy when you think about it. That's why he balks at this unholy smorgasbord. His protest was understandable in the light of his upbringing that any serious Jew would have reacted the same way. And when Peter is told to kill and eat these non-kosher foods, it's as if 1,500 years of tradition and the law of Moses and thousands of teachings by all of the rabbis and his entire Jewish family is screaming in his ear to ask for another menu. (laughs) To ask, is there something else? Are there other options? Peter was wrestling with his tradition and his training and with his conscience. I can't do this. Now, I want to pause right here. And I want to say something that I think all of us need to hear. And it's this. Listen, church. We must not measure our Christianity by what we do and don't do. We can't do that. 
We can't measure, well, I'm a Christian. I don't do this, this, and this. And I, I'm, you know, this is what I do, this is what I don't do. That's, that, that's what so often happens. We get into that performance-based acceptance mentality. And listen, as parents and as grandparents, we must not teach our kids that we do X, Y, and Z simply because we are Christians. And we don't do X, Y, and Z. On the other side, simply because we are Christians. We need to teach our kids and grandkids the what and the why of Scripture. That they need to know God's heart behind the command. And we also need to clearly differentiate. Listen to me. We need to clearly differentiate between what our house rules, our own personal house rules, and what are God's rules and God's commands. Because sometimes we can get those mixed up. If we have a personal conviction about something, we need to tell our kids, this this is our personal conviction. This is the way it's going to be in our house. And this is why. But this is what the Bible says. This is the big picture. I'll give you an example. In my house, because of God delivering my dad from alcoholism and him coming to a place where God made very clear, Tony, you don't need this anymore. And he put that out of his life. Our rule, house rule, was we had no alcohol in our house. We didn't drink in our house. But the Bible doesn't say don't drink. The Bible says don't get drunk. Now, in my house, my parents were like, hey, the best way to not get drunk is to not drink. So that's the way that we're going to approach this. And that's the way that we looked at that subject. But listen, we need to do that. We need to differentiate, though, between house rules and God's rules because we're trying to prepare our kids to live as Christ followers and be salt and light in a world that doesn't love or worship Jesus. So it's important that our kids don't see the Christian faith as merely a series of do's and don'ts where they grow up thinking, well, non-Christians do X, Y, and Z because that's what non-Christians do. But Christians do, you know, this, these X, Y, and Z's because this is what Christians do, but they don't have any idea why we do or don't do those things. That we've never explained to them the heart of God in that. And here's what happens when they get older, they start to question. Well, why don't we do that? Why, why is that such a, a wrong thing? They have no idea of the concrete reasons why they're abstaining from certain things. They, they can't even articulate it. All they've been taught, all they've been you know, brainwashed is like, oh, Christians don't do that. But why? They start to question. They start to, get, to start to get curious. And what else it does is it makes them completely unrelatable to the very people that God is wanting them to reach. The very people that he's placed in their life, their unsaved friends that they go to school with or play sports with, that God is wanting them to be salt and light and share Jesus with. And it makes them unrelatable. I'll give you an example. When I was 21, I was a Christian and I was working at a hotel, and I was doing room service. And one of the guys I did room service with was this guy named Blake. And Blake and I were kind of hitting it off, and I really wanted to share Jesus with Blake. And we were talking about how we both like tennis, and we were talking about, you know, a time when we're going to go get together and play tennis. And I was thinking, that's going to be my opportunity. 
Well, one day I was riding my bike down the boardwalk there at Newport Beach, and I hear somebody behind me yelling, Rob, Rob, and I turn, I look behind, and it's Blake. And he's standing in the front yard of one of those houses, those beachfront houses, and behind him is a raging party going on. I mean, there's all these people, there's loud music, everybody's drinking. I come riding up, he's like, Rob, it's good to see you, me and my friends, we rented this house for a week, come have a beer. And this is how I responded. I looked at him and said, Blake, I'm a Christian. I don't drink. The smile left his face. He turned around and walked away and never spoke to me again. Because what he heard was, I'm a Christian, you're a heathen, and I don't approve of your lifestyle. So a few weeks later, as, as, as that happened, I, I thought to myself, I didn't handle that well. <laughs> But that had been, listen to me, that had been my defense mechanism. All through high school, things would come, I don't, I'm a Christian. I don't do that because I'm a Christian. It was the way that I, I protected myself from getting tempted. And people kind of left me alone, you know, because of it. But after that event with Baker, I thought, you know, I didn't handle that right. So a few weeks later, I'm, I'm working, another guy I'm working with, a guy named Tim, and Tim says, hey man, it's playoffs, Lakers are on tonight, let's go to that sports bar after work and get a beer and watch the game. I said, okay. So we head over, sit in the booth, watching the game, the waitress comes up and says, what do you guys have? He goes, I'll have a beer. And I said, you know what, I'll have an iced tea. He goes, you're not getting a beer? I said, no. He goes, he says, I'll have an iced tea too. So then he asked me, he says, how come you don't get get a beer? And I told him, I said, well, you know what, Tim? I said, you know, I grew up in a house. My dad was a heavy drinker and I saw what alcohol did to him. I saw what it did to some of his friends. I saw how God delivered him from that, completely changed his life. It kind of led me to become a follower of Jesus. And and, and I'm just going to place my life where I just realized I don't need those outside stimulants. Tim ends up getting saved starts going to church with me because I knew (laughs) the right way to respond to him and talk to him. Okay. Very, very important. All right. Enough with the commercial. Let's get back to, uh, (laughs) get back to our text. All right. So Peter's heart is in conflict here because this vision is challenging everything that he's been trained to believe. And so Peter responds to God's command, rise, kill, and eat with the ultimate oxymoron. What's an oxymoron? It's, it's two words, two phrases that don't go together. What's his oxymoron? Not so, Lord. Listen, you can say, not so, pal. Not so, dude. Not so, son. But you can't say, not so, Lord. If Jesus is Lord, we don't tell him no. And Jesus tell, gives Peter, he's so patient with him, he gives him this vision three times. God's always working in threes in Peter's life, right? But the point is, Jesus is sharing this reality that it's not as though the Jew is clean and the Gentile was common or unclean and distant from God. This is the reality. This is where God is taking Peter. It's the reality that both Jew and Gentile, apart from Jesus, they're all unclean. They both need to be saved. And we'll see this manifested next week. 
as we come back to the story. But what we see happening here is a sovereign God is stepping out of the box and he's recruiting Peter to step out of the box with him. And that's what God continues to do, my friends. God is always stepping out of the box and he's recruiting us to step out of the box with him. To step out of our mindsets that are unbiblical, to step out of our old traditions that are unbiblical and get with his program. But the only way that God is going to be able to do this with Peter, the only way that that what God wants to accomplish is going to happen in your life or, or my life, it's one word and it's the word surrender. And that's what we see next, next, the surrender and submission of Peter to the vision. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, and God's going to reveal this to him on the way, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them. Key phrase, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. God's saying, look, Peter, don't overanalyze this. Don't overthink this. Just go. I'm in this. Verse 21. Then Peter went down to to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said to him, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, if we were watching a movie right now on the screen, it would say to be continued. And that's what we're going to see when we come back to this story next week. But here's a question as we wrap up and head towards communion. Question, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to see breakthrough in your life and in your walk with Jesus? Do you want to see God's power unleashed in you and through you? Here's how it happens. Stop saying no to the promptings of the Lord and start saying yes, Lord. So what have you been saying no to the Lord about? Maybe he's been prompting you to share with someone and you're like, man, I'm not going, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. I don't know what to say. Maybe he's been prompting you to sign up for some ministry opportunity and you're thinking, man, I don't think so. That's so out of my comfort zone. Maybe he's been prompting you to make a change and to give up something that you are doing. It's not even a sin issue, but it's one of those gray issues It's one of those things that the writer of Hebrews talks about. It's a weight that is weighing you down. And you've been saying, no, Lord, I don't want to give that up. I don't want to do that. Note this. He's not going to force you. God's a perfect gentleman. He's not going to force you. Maybe God has been prompting you to lay down and surrender a bad attitude that you've been holding on to about someone. Whatever it is, listen, all of that resistance is hindering the work of God in your life. 
The God who loves you has a plan for you. The God who says, you are my workmanship and I've created these good works that I want you to walk in. He's not gonna force you to walk in them, but if you walk in them, you are going to experience him working in your life. I mean, think about this. I'm almost done. What if Peter would have stood his ground and said, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not going there. I'm not talking to that guy. I'm not going to go talk and share you with that Roman. I believe that Cornelius still would have been saved. And here's why. You know who was already in Caesarea? This kind of blows my mind. Philip. Remember Philip? We met Philip in Acts 6. He was one of the first deacons. And then in Acts 8, we see Philip, when the church is scattered, goes down to Samaria, preaches the gospel, revival breaks out, and then God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go out to Gaza, to the desert, I got something for you there. Philip goes out there and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. That was really the first Gentile that gets saved in the book of Acts. Well, guess where Philip is in Acts 10? He's in Caesarea. But God didn't pick Philip. He picks Peter. God wants Peter to be the vessel to speak to Cornelius to be the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in a real, you know, formal type of way, the one that's going to be the springboard to all of this. But if, if Peter would have been like, sorry, Lord, I'm not going. It's like, okay, I'll just ask Philip. He's, he's always ready to go, you know? I'll just ask him. And Philip would have got the blessing. And you know what? I've experienced that in my own life. There's been times where God said to me, Rob, I want you to do this. I want you to take that stuff. I want you to go get involved in there. And I'm like, ah, I don't, I'm just not into that, Lord. So he picked somebody else. And I watched them get used. And I watched them get blessed. And I'm like, oh, man, that could have been me. It's not going to force us. But, man, he has so much for us. So, again, I ask you, what have you been saying no to Jesus about. Listen, that needs to change. And your no needs to become today a yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Ready for service. And maybe you're here today and you're not saved. You've never really given your life to Jesus. You've come into this. Somebody invited you or you wandered in and, and, and you don't know Jesus. You're a seeker. You're here though. Know this because God's been drawing you. He's tugging on your heart. He wants you to know that, that your sin has separated him, you from him. But he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. That's why he sent his son Jesus to come and die on the cross for you. And you need to stop saying no. You need to stop resisting that knocking of his spirit on your heart. You need to say, yes, Lord, I want to give my life to you. Or maybe you're here today and you are a prodigal son or daughter. You've walked away from Jesus. You've been living in rebellion. And you know it. Others might not know, but you know it. You know what's going inside your heart. And you've been saying, no, no, Lord. You say yes to Jesus today. I'm going to have the band come out right now. You need to open up your heart today to Jesus. To say yes to him. You know, we're going to partake of communion. You should all have, actually, they're up here. In a minute, we're going to, band's going to begin to play, and I'm going to dismiss you to come forward and receive of one of these little communion packets. On the top of it is a little wafer. 
that speaks of the body of Jesus. I like to take my wafer and break it because it says his body was broken for us. It took all the shame, all the sin that we deserved. He took it upon himself. The cup of juice represents his blood that was shed, the Bible says, for the remission of our sins, to set us free, to cleanse us. But the Bible tells us that we should not partake of communion in what's called an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It means when I know what the body and the the blood represents, that the sacrifice of Jesus that he gave for me, but I'm not willing to surrender my heart to him. Or I still want to continue to live in my rebellion and my sin. That's to eat of it in an unworthy manner. And the Bible says, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't come. Don't partake. But here's the other option. Don't eat in an unworthy manner. Don't, don't just stay seated. But the other option is open your heart today to Jesus. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we do. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, God, for being so patient with us and our rebellion, our stubbornness. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. to cleanse us, to make us new. That you tell us in your word that when your blood is is applied to our sin, that it makes us righteous. Our sins are forgiven and they're forgotten and they're removed. Thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, we, we rejoice today in that reality. But Lord, I pray for those here today that maybe don't know you. That right now, as your Holy Spirit is knocking on their hearts, that they would open up the door. For those who have been the prodigal son and prodigal daughter who have wandered from you, Lord, I pray today that they would open up their hearts, that they would surrender, that they would stop saying no, stop resisting and say, yes, Lord. I want to walk in the plan that you have for me. And so if you're here today and you have never, ever given your heart to Jesus, or you're here today and you at one point in time maybe professed him, but you right now are living in rebellion, you've walked away, and today you want to surrender your heart to Jesus, I want you just to repeat this prayer after me and mean this with all your heart. Say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've been rebellious. I admit, God, that I need you. And so I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me, to come into my life, make my heart your home. From this day forward, I want to live for you. I want to follow you. I want to walk in your plan that you have for me, not my plan. Thank you, Lord. 